is the conclusion of the He Came From Where series. Um, this was absolutely the person I was waiting for the most. When I look at the genealogy of Jesus, to see all these people in there, and then to read where it says, And Salmon, who gave birth, whose son was Boaz, by the wife Rahab. It's like, wow, what an incredible thing that we know her, and she's mentioned multiple times in the New Testament, by her position that she had. But to think that God used her in that moment, but also went above and beyond, and she became the great-great-grandmother of David. She became in the genealogy of Jesus. What an incredible thing. And so um, this morning, we're going to look at this unique individual named Rahab. And, and there's kind of three main questions that I want to tackle today. One is, who is she? One, the other one is, is why her? And then the other one is, is what's her connection to the cross? But let's pray first. God, thank you for this day that you blessed us with. Lord, uh, as we come to you this morning, we acknowledge this Christmas season and the great things that it brings about. But Lord, we also know that comes with that is, is pain and heartache. And so Lord, we lift up each and every person here this morning. And I pray for those who are unable to be here. God, as sickness is, is spreading, Lord, that you would just be with them, help them have a speedy recovery. But this morning, God, as we're here, we pray that you would begin to minister to our hearts, Lord, that we would realize our past doesn't define who we are, that all that matters is our saving knowledge of you. So this morning, God, let that be real. Let your spirit flow in a mighty way, and we'll give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I've titled today's message as Relatives with the Past. Um, and as you know the story of Rahab, and we'll get into it, you understand that she has a little bit of a past. Uh, I don't know if you've ever met someone who was, maybe it was someone you knew who had somewhat of a past. Maybe you have a relative who spent some time in prison, or you met somebody who uh, just had kind of a reputation, whether it be good or bad, for something they did in the past. Or maybe you met someone who's infamous for something, and, and that's not what they do anymore. Uh, I, every single day, uh, interact with men who... When you know what they're in there for, you're like, wow, I just interacted with a guy who could be that brutal. Uh, it's incredible. But back in 2014, uh, we were in Rome, Georgia, and we had an event um, that was to bring awareness to this juvenile justice ministry that we were, uh, that we were in charge of. And, and so we, we, we brought in a man whose name was Michael Franzis. Michael Franzis, if you're not familiar with him, he was a captain in the Colombo mob family. Uh, he, at the height of his criminal ways, was bringing in 5 to $8 million a week to the Colombo family. He was listed in Forbes magazine within the top 50 of the greatest mobsters of all time, just a few spots behind John Gotti. He was a powerful man in that family. And then he went to prison. And when he was in prison, one day a guard threw him a Bible, and he began to read it, and he gave his life to Christ. And so he would share that story, um, and he spoke at a police event for us. He, he spoke to a thing where we had a panel with some judges and stuff on it. I mean, his story was impactful. Um, what I love about his story is that he's one of the only men who ever left the mob not in a body bag. He chose to do his time 
And he wouldn't come out against all the other mobsters. And as a result, they let him live. But his father had a hit out on his life, his own dad, who was still one of the top ones in the Colombo family. And I can remember meeting him for the first time, and there was just a presence about him that you're like, this guy is, is dangerous if he wants to be. He, he has a little bit of a past that I don't want him to snap back to those things. And uh, What I'm so thankful for is God changed his life and is using him in a mighty way, but we meet people from time to time who have somewhat of a past. They have a reputation. And in that, we try to navigate how to forge a relationship with them. Out of the entire genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, there is an individual who sticks out to me the most who we know has a past, and her name is Rahab. Uh, last week, I kind of mentioned that there's four women within that Matthew 1 genealogy of Jesus. There's Tamar, who, was, uh, who had twins by a man named Judah. Uh, there is Ruth, who we talked about last week, who married Boaz and became the great-great-grandmother, great-great-great-grandmother of, of David. Uh, there's Bathsheba, who is not necessarily mentioned by name, but is referenced. And then you have uh, Rahab. So four women. It's mentioned in this text. And to think of what her past and unique story brought to the genealogy of Jesus is incredible to me. Because you would think Jesus' genealogy would be filled with royalty. But what we find is Jesus' genealogy is filled with people like us. Make mistakes. Yeah, there was royalty in there, but there was people who had failures, mistakes. And some people like Rahab who had somewhat of a past. But what's beautiful is God used each one of them in a unique way. The story of Rahab begins in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, I want to read the whole story to you. Uh, I know that many of you probably know it, but uh, there's several things within the story that I want to point out. Um, so it would be Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly to Shedom as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flocks that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the, the land. And the fear of you is falling upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water from the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she left them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. So she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or to the pursuers, uh, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell our business, then we shall be guiltless with respect to our oath that you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away. They departed. And she then tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given us given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away. Because of us. It's an incredible story. I love one. It's because we know about what Jericho is. Because we read in chapter 7 about what Joshua and them have to march around the city for seven days. One time a day blowing their horns. And and on the last day they walk seven times and, and God brings the walls down. And we know this fortified city was an important fortress for the Canaanite people. They put it there. It was on the Jordan River, so it was a great place for the route of, of moving merchandise. It was a very popular place. And inside of these massive city walls was Rahab's house, which is incredible. Now, if you didn't gather from the story, the trade that Rahab lived was that she was a prostitute. And so her city, her house was positioned where it was because travelers would easily have access to the business that she offered. Now, if you read this story and you're like me, you probably go, what does two godly men have going on that they would go into a prostitute's house? I mean, from what we read, it sounds like their first stop in the city is going directly into Rahab's house. Now, some may say to you, that they went there for exactly what the house is all about. I don't know that to be true. What I believe is that it was not uncommon for foreign people to make a pit stop at a house like Rahab's. And I believe the two men who didn't want to be standing out from all the other people decided to use that avenue as a way of doing the spy work that Joshua had called them to do. I will tell you this, there would be nobody who would be better informed on your city and on what was on the outside of the walls than a person like Rahab. Because these men would come to her, and as we read the story of Samson and Delilah, and he would just pour his heart out to her, these men would do that. They looked for an escape, they looked for a one night where they could be 
open about everything and then just leave it all behind. And so Rahab knew all the intricacies of what was going on in the city. And so she was able to tell them, our people are scared. They're afraid that your God is going to inhabit this place and melt all the people away. They also were able to find refuge from her because she knew that they were coming to look for him. Rahab was in the know. And so God used this woman who knew everything there was going on in the city and outside the city because she would be the very person who could inform the spies of everything they needed. It's an incredible thing. I love how in this story she begins to share of the things that she's heard. And I'm sure she's saying, this is what I've heard, but also fishing for affirmation. She's like, we've heard how God dried up the Red Sea and that you escaped the Egyptians across there. She's probably going, is that true? Like, how could that happen? And they're probably going, yeah, that happened. We were there. And then she's like, I heard about how God has delivered enemies, mighty armies into your hands without you having any casualties. Is that true? And they're going, yeah, we were there for that. That is true. And as she moved and was asking all these stories to her, and they had circulated throughout Jericho, and the people were scared. And she began to testify to the greatness of God. And this Gentile woman, through a disgraceful business, makes her profession of faith. In verse number 11, she says, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God. In the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She believed that Jehovah was God. Now Jericho was very similar to a lot of the other places of that time. They were polytheistic religions. They believed in the goddess of this and the god of that. And they believed in nature. And and so they had a lot of areas to turn to for their spiritual renewal. And so for a proclamation like this from a woman who was engrossed with God's was an amazing statement. She said, your God is the God of all gods. All these gods that we worship, he's greater than them. This God can't part the Red Sea. This goddess can't deliver enemies into our hands. But your God has done those things. He is God of all gods. And so because she believed that Jehovah was God, she then misleads the men sent from the king in order to spare the spies. They come to her knocking because people had heard that two foreigners had made their way into her house. And she says, ah, they must have went to the Jordan River. If you'll hurry and catch them, you can surely get to them. And she hides them out. What's always stuck out to me in this story is that it's so descriptive about the rope. Has that ever stuck out to you? Like it doesn't just say she, was let, she let him down with a rope and, and then that same rope she tied in there. But it's very specific that it was a scarlet rope that let him down and that same scarlet rope was to be tied in the window. And I read the story and I go, what's the significance of the rope? Well, we read about a scarlet rope three times in Scripture. The first time that we read about it is actually someone else within the lineage of Jesus. If you remember on week one of this, I talked to you about the twins of Judah and Tamar. 
Peretz, if you remember, burst his way out in front of his brother who had stuck his arm out and the midwife had tied a scarlet rope to his arm to signify that he is the firstborn. And Peretz maneuvered his way and he became the firstborn. And the significance of that is that the firstborn becomes the inheritor of all the things. And so he kind of bypassed and became the firstborn. That symbolic thing that happened in that room where they were being delivered is a reminder to us that our Savior was not going to come the way that we thought He was going to come. They had tied a scarlet rope to a description of what they thought He was going to be. He was going to come in. He was going to clean house. He was going to restore the Jews back to political power. He was going to restore order. And He was going to make the Jews be in line. That was what we thought. So they tied a scarlet rope and said, this is what the Messiah will be. And then in the Christmas story, we read that He was none of those things. That He came in a humble, meek way. And through His birth, He offered salvation in a way that they hadn't even thought about. An eternal salvation, not a political and war salvation. That's the first scarlet rope. The second scarlet rope we read about is when we read about the description of the tabernacle and what the priest was wearing. In the tabernacle curtains, there would have hung four different ropes. A blue, a gold, a purple, and a red. And upon what the the priest was wearing would have been four different robes. A blue, a gold, a purple, and a red, or a scarlet. Now the blue, the gold, and the purple were four shadows of Jesus. The blue was symbolic of Christ's heavenly origin. The gold was foreshadowing Christ's glory. And the purple was to foreshadow His kingly position. And the scarlet thread represents Christ's atoning work on the cross through the shedding of His blood. Those four things hung in the tabernacle as a foreshadow that that wouldn't need to exist anymore because someone was coming who would take the place of that. He would be from heaven. He would be in glory. He would be the king of all kings. And He would atone for something that we couldn't pay a price for. And the third time is the rope that is listed as Rahab's possession. Rahab placed the scarlet rope in the window and it brought to her and her family salvation. If you'll remember, the men say to her, all I need you to do is to tie a rope in there. And here's what we'll do. We'll make sure as long as all your family is in there, your father, your mother, your brothers and sisters and everybody who's connected to them, as long as everybody is in that room, they will be spared. Now the Israelites, when they took down Jericho, they burned the city, they killed all the women, men, and children, and they left nothing except taking the gold and silver and putting it into the tabernacle reserves as a dedication to God. But if Rahab would stick to what they told her and place that scarlet rope, she would find salvation from God's wrath. I look at this and, and it's hard to fathom how God could send punishment to women and children and men in such a kind of genocidal way. But actually when we look in Leviticus, we find that God had given them every opportunity. And they'd become so wretched. 
He talks about how men were laying with men and women were laying with women. And he said that, that women and, and men were laying with animals. And God was so disgusted with all the people that surrounded the Israelites that he began to, to uh, put his wrath upon them. And the vehicle he chose to take out Jericho was Joshua and the children of Israel. 40,000 troops came in and wiped that place down. But Rahab tied the rope in the window. And that scarlet rope was symbolic of salvation to her. Do you see the picture? Three times we have the scarlet rope. It's symbolic of Christ not coming the way that we think He should. It's symbolic of salvation. And it's symbolic of Christ's atoning work on the cross. You may have even heard this phrase. We like to call it the scarlet thread throughout the Bible. Have you ever heard somebody say that? The scarlet thread throughout the Bible. By this we reference in the Bible's theme is Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for the redemption of mankind. The blood of Christ runs throughout the entire Bible symbolically. It's seen in the animals killed in Eden to provide garments for Adam and Eve. The ram that took the place of Isaac on Mount Moriah. The Passover lamb who paid the sacrifice of the firstborn could be spared. The institution of the sacrificial system that Moses laid out in Leviticus. The scarlet rope of of Rahab that showed us that salvation comes through faith. And the thousands of years of sacrifice performed at the tabernacle and temple. And it doesn't stop in just the Old Testament. This scarlet thread begins to go into the New Testament all the way up to John the Baptist's declaration. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and to the foot of the cross where Jesus finally says, it is finished. That thread runs from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation when we find His atoning work completed as we rest with Him in eternity. The scarlet thread runs all throughout the Bible. The scarlet thread is symbolic, it's important. And the reason that the writer of Joshua makes sure to emphasize the description of it is to remind us that Christ is all that we need when we go through struggles and stuff. Rahab was spared and and she ends up marrying a man named Salmon and, and giving birth to a boy named Boaz. And that name is familiar because last week we talked about Boaz's wife, Ruth. And so what an incredible thing. Rahab, the first account of salvation that we have of a Gentile person, gives birth to Boaz, who marries a Gentile woman. And she gives birth to Obed, who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to David. And in this king and royalty line, we have sprinkled throughout people that didn't deserve to be there. It's an incredible thing. And being in the lineage of Christ... What an incredible mark for Rahab. This unlikely heroine became the great, 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 great grandmother of David in the lineage of Christ, and she's listed in the hall of faith. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 31 says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I love that it lists her past because it wants to remind us that God can use anybody who has a past to do great things in the future. It's like um, Rahab, the prostitute, by faith, 
gave a friendly welcome and spared those spies. And in my life, I can see if the story was be written, Eric, the defiling man who does unthinkable things, could be used to impact people's lives. Or plug yourself in. It's an incredible reminder that God can take us no matter where we come from or what we think we're coming from. And He can use us for great things. What's so amazing about her being in the lineage of Christ is that Rahab is actually a foreshadow of the church. Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was saved because of her faith in God in heaven above and on earth below. Likewise, Christians are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. She was spared that day by her faith. There was nothing else she could have done that day than have faith that they were going to honor what they said. It's a picture of the church. Rahab and Christians are saved by an act of grace through faith. True faith requires an exemplified and is exemplified by action according to James chapter 2. Rahab had to put the scarlet cord out of the window. And Christians must accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and then go live in a manner that verifies that our faith is real. It's one thing for me to tie a scarlet to, to tell somebody, yeah, I'll just tie a scarlet rope up in my window. That means nothing if I don't follow through with what the faith has asked of me. And in our Christian journey, we can say all day long that I'm a Christian. No, I'm a Christian. And if we don't live in faith the things that we believe, then we're destined for destruction as everyone else in that city was. But by faith... Which led to action, she was spared. Christians must accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then live in a manner that verifies that our faith is real. Rahab could have indicated the location of her home in any number of ways, but the only way that she could be spared was to follow the directions given to her by the Israelite spies. They could have said, Tie a scarlet rope on your window, and she could have said, Well, I'll just hang this scarf in my window, and they'll still know it's me. It was a specific command that they gave her in order for her to be spared. But the only way that she could have been spared was to follow their directions. The world tells us that there are many ways to God and salvation, all equally valid. But the Bible tells us concerning Jesus Christ that salvation is found in no one else. Acts 4.12 For there is no name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. We talk about it as a part of the Colossian study we're doing about humanism and, and this idea that all humans are created the way we are, so we're going to do the things we do, but it's okay because God wouldn't create us that way if He didn't want us to be that way. And what we find is people live in such a, such a uh, horrible and wicked state and still have the audacity to say, but now, yeah, I'm okay, I'm going to heaven. Uh, there's many ways to heaven, not just by the example that's given through Scripture. But God doesn't give us the instruction and, if, and expect us to not follow it and still get the reward at the end. It would be like telling your children, go clean your room. 
And if you clean your room, I will give you a toy. And an hour later, you go, and they go, well, I cleaned the bathroom. Can I still get a toy? No, I I told you a specific task. I didn't say do that. I said do this particular thing. And God has called us to that same thing. Where he's looked at us and said, I want you to go seek and save lost people and share the hope of the gospel with them. It's not a request. It is a command. And if you can't do that, then you can't follow my command. I didn't ask you to hang a scarf up in the window. I asked you to tie a scarlet rope. And today God has called us to that. Rahab was foreshadowing the church today. Rahab, my favorite part. Rahab's faith enabled her to turn away from her culture, her people, and her religion and to the Lord. And once we come to Christ, our past no longer matters. The slate is wiped clean for all who believe and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. Rahab was no longer viewed as an unclean prostitute, but as one worthy by grace to be a part of the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today you may be wrestling with, I'm I'm not good enough to be what God's called me to be. I, I have faith enough to tie a scarlet rope in there to be saved, but I don't have faith enough to leave my land, to leave my culture, to leave my family behind. I don't have that faith yet. But I want you to know that God wipes that slate clean when you leave. And He brings you into a new fellowship. And what we find in this beautiful story of Rahab is she leaves all those things behind. And it's burnt away and it's taken away. And what she finds is a greater future. I mean, she didn't know this probably at the time, but she is in the lineage of the Messiah. There was no greater honor that could have been bestowed upon a person than that. And that's what happened to her. Because by faith, she left it all behind. Paul, who, who looks at the life that he had, he was an intelligent man. He had everything a Jew would want. He was admired by people. He was viewed as this young prodigy. He was the one who carried out the orders for the religious leaders. He had everything that you would think a man would want. And Paul himself says, I counted all as rubbish. For the glory of God. Paul looked at everything he had and said, It means nothing if I don't live for God. And this morning, if you see anything from the story of Rahab, it's this that your life is rubbish until the moment you meet Christ. It doesn't matter what your past is, it matters who's in your future. If Christ is in your future, then one day a rider will ride about you by faith. They believed in Jesus. And though they were this, God made them that. This Christmas, the lineage of Christ is a hope that, a, that despite our past, our failures, if we receive the free gift of salvation, our lives are forever changed. We look at the lineage of Jesus and we go, He came from where? He came from people like us. A church who was surrounded by a broken community who who needed some sort of hope. And he was born into that. And he came from that. And he came to that. I think what could better be said about the title of this series is not he came from where, but he came to who? 
Because he came to save people just like Rahab, just like David, who was a murderer. Do you know that David, when he killed the husband of Bathsheba, it's believed there was probably 70 other men on that front line that died. He was a murderer, and God called him the apple of his eye. Solomon was a womanizer. He turned to other gods in the end of his life. But he found hope in God. Ruth, who had everything to die for. Her husband was dead. She was going into a community where she didn't belong because she wasn't a Jew. But she found hope in that story. This Christmas, Jesus entering our world is hope entering our life. And through that hope, by faith, he's brought salvation to us. That scarlet thread that runs throughout the whole Bible didn't end in Revelation, but it runs into the hearts and lives of us today and reminds us of the atoning work of Christ. What does Rahab have to do with the cross? She was the connection of what was to come. She hung down a rope that showed what the atoning work of Christ would do, that it would take somebody from where they didn't belong and put them where they needed to be. That it would look at two people who shouldn't have been in that city and say, but redemption's coming today. Let me me let you down. And through that, save me. This Christmas, hope is born in our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your love, your mercy, your grace. God, all that you've done in our lives is such an incredible thing. And this morning, God, I lift up each and every person here. God, there, there's, there's undoubtedly people here who, who struggles with their past, who, who looks at who they used to be and go, I'm not worthy of what God has called from me. But this morning, God, you've called them to greater things. And by faith, they can do exceeding expectations of what has been laid out for their life. By faith, God, they can find salvation. By faith, they can have the slate wiped clean. By faith, They can have that scarlet rope tied in their life that says, He is mine. Christ is mine and He saves me. This morning with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you that chance. Maybe you're here this morning and go, I'm saved, but I still struggle with my past. I'm I'm saved, but I still struggle with who I used to be. This morning, this Christmas season, I want to open the altar up for you to find hope, to find peace, and to find love in this Christmas season. This morning... We're going to open the altars for just a bit. And if you need to seek God, you need to pray, you need to have a breakthrough of some faith-shattering thing in your life, just know that Christ is waiting for you this morning.